Great. Thanks, David, very much indeed. We, we were going to um, celebrate the projector working perfectly. But those sharp-eyed amongst you will realize that there are a few moments of, um, of bleeping, blipping that is going on. Um, Lord, give us patience, but hurry. We're um, thinking about vital signs. Those signs that there are in our ordinary, everyday, biological lives that show that we're alive and that we're healthy. You might remember in your biological or your biology lessons at school that you, for GCSE biology, memorized the seven uh, signs of life uh, in order to uh, see that something is living and breathing and uh, going well. Why don't we turn the projector right off, power it off and recycle it back on and see if that makes any difference given that it's pretty useless just at the minute. Um, so you've got the seven signs of life which are things that we've already covered over these last few weeks, movement and respiration. And then this morning uh, we're going to look at sensitivity because everything that's living, that's alive, is sensitive to what's going on internally, so unless a plant or an animal is sensitive to what's going on within it, inside of it, uh, it can't respond appropriately. Uh, and also every living thing is sensitive to external stimulus of one kind or another, uh, whether it's the need to find food, or whether it's the need to find shelter, or whether it's the need to protect themselves. We are all the time adjusting ourselves to what's going on around us. And the main premise of this whole uh, series is that Jesus would often take biological reality and use it to illustrate a spiritual truth. So what does the biological reality that we have been created as sensitive beings help us in terms of understanding our kingdom lives and the kingdom dimension of those uh, lives. Something that's alive responds to its surroundings. If you're proper dead, you don't move. Something that's described as dead as a, a doornail or a doorpost is something that does not in any way respond to what's going on around. So if we move that into a kind of spiritual dimension, we might find ourselves saying that we are spiritually dead if we are not responding to the things that are going on uh, around us. It's a massive subject this morning to think about our sensitivity in all kinds of different uh, areas. But it begs the question at its heart, how sensitive are you to your surroundings? How sensitive are you to your surroundings? Now, we could take this in all kinds of different ways and in all kinds of different directions. We could think about how sensitive we are in our relationship to God. We could think about how sensitive we are to uh, the people Around us, we could think about how sensitive we are to the location where we've been placed. 
We could think about how sensitive we are to all kinds of other scenarios. But I want to uh, sort of focus it right in this morning to think about how sensitive are we towards other people? How sensitive are we towards others? Everything starts with Jesus, so let's begin there. Jesus, in his life and ministry and rhythm, experienced, or um, uh, not experienced, lived out true sensitivity. I want you to think with me about the time. You can't see it on the screen yet, unless you turn around. Um, uh, I want you to think with me about the time that uh, Jesus met a leper. Now, a leper was like an AIDS victim perhaps 15, 20 years ago, utterly ostracized. You'd lost everything. No one wanted to be part of you or connect with you or engage with you whatsoever. In fact, you would ring a bell as you walked along in order for people to get out of the way. So there was this predisposition that if you were a leper, then no one would be positively sensitive towards you. In fact, everybody would be hugely negative uh, towards you. And Mark, in his writing in the Gospels, tells the story of a leper that comes to Jesus. And in Mark chapter 1 and verse 40, it says, A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. If you are willing, you can make me clean. What we might expect Jesus to say is, I am willing, be clean. And the reason we would expect that simplicity is Mark's gospel was a very simple gospel written in quite simple, almost uh, a primary school level reading Greek. Uh, you know, I, and I, you've heard me say this before, so, you know, whatever you, whatever you used to learn to, to read, Peter and Jane was it, or Chiff and Bip, not forgetting Kipper, um, and some of you got no idea what that refers to, but others of you go, oh, yeah, I remember that, um, Mark's gospel is very blunt and to the point, and he almost entirely focuses on facts. In that sense, he is a true blokey fisherman, only deals in facts. Feelings? Just facts. But every now and again, when he writes the story of Jesus, he puts in a little filler, and this is one of those fillers. Mark chapter 1 verse 40 says this, A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Then verse 41, this is the filler, filled with compassion. Suddenly, Mark awakens himself to feelings of some kind. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man, I am willing, be clean. What was it? In that moment that so impressed Mark, that so imprinted on his memory, that he would record that emotion. There was something vivid, something tangible, something real, something just in the air that he obviously felt and was touched by. He could see it, he experienced it, he felt it. He said, wow, in that moment, Jesus was filled with compassion. And he said, be clean. Such sensitivity that priestly rules were disobeyed. 
such tenderness that the leper, feeling accepted, loved and valued, was worth in that moment more than anything else. Another example, again in Mark's Gospel, similar kind of thing, is in chapter 10. Uh, As Jesus started on his way, we're around verse 17 now, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him, good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This guy was a clever clogs and he had some kind of fancy approach to Jesus, uh, trying to trick him. And Jesus said, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. He was a perfectly religious person who was about to miss out on the kingdom of God. Isn't that a sad story, to say the least? People that are this close because they're full of religion, but yet about to miss out on the kingdom of God. And Jesus looked at him and said, one thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, then follow me. But no, it doesn't say that. It says Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Again, what was it in that moment that when years later, Peter, Mark, whoever was writing these words down, what was it in that moment that they, yeah, I remember that. I, I can almost feel the love that Jesus had. There was something tangible in the air. There was an aroma that touched um, uh, our lives, even as we watched on. And as Jesus saw that man walk away, he was sad because he loved him. So that question, how sensitive are we to our surroundings? And if we narrow that down this morning to think about our relationships, how sensitive are we in our homes, in our marriages, in our workplaces, amongst those we meet? How sensitive are we to those in need? How sensitive are we to those who are struggling or in some way dependent on others? I don't know about you, But I think it's easy for sensitivity to be in short supply. To be sensitive in the way that Jesus exhibited actually requires our hearts to become open and vulnerable. I don't actually really want my heart to be open and vulnerable because then I will get hurt. So my natural, human, selfish, ungodly, pre-kingdom disposition is to protect my heart. Because actually, if I give you my heart, you will not care for it as you should. And vice versa, neither would I. So we protect our hearts in all kinds of different ways. And one of the ways that we protect our hearts is to shut need out. We do that all um, the time. We shut need out. If I'm sensitive towards you, then you might take advantage of that. And so I try and protect myself. There's a real sense in which all that we get exposed to these days is too much to handle. And, and we, we might sometimes 
turn the news off or wish we hadn't heard about that story or look the other way or do our best not to think about it. So you might walk past someone um, who's clearly got nowhere to stay in the day or the night in town and, and part of you will be training your mind and your heart not to think about that too much. Because what you don't want to do is to get emotionally connected because you know that leads to all kinds of trouble. And so you... you anyone know what I'm talking about? So, so it's best to shut it out. And we're brilliantly good at shutting things out because we can watch the 10 o'clock news and there is this disaster and that disaster and that's gone wrong and that trauma and this happens and that happens and then Ipswich lost 2-1 and at 10.35 we're sad about Ipswich losing 2-1. Isn't that the truth? I mean, it could be Wales rugby. It could be anything. It's not, a, it's not a go at Ipswich town, although don't see why not. And, and kind of we, we just lose all this kind of sense of perspective because we've come so used to protecting our hearts. That thing on Facebook this week about the kid and the gorilla, do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know? Isn't that weird in a way? I mean, gorillas are gorillas, aren't they, at the end of the day? And... Um, Children are children made in the image of God. And yet we've, we've learned to kind of shut out certain things. And we can do that quite easily and quite naturally and quite comfortably. So there's everything going on around us and we can walk right through it without it touching our lives. We, we do it all the time. There are needs in your workplace that right now you, you are not sensitive to. Probably because you've trained yourself not to be sensitive towards it because you know it'll end up in trouble. There are needs in your neighborhood, in your street, that if you allowed yourself, you might become sensitive to, but you're not going to allow yourself because that would be a world of trouble, and so on and so forth. We are sometimes in relationships, in marriages, when we're not sensitive to one another because we're fear of what that might open up and bring into the relationship. And so we desensitize ourselves to things that are going on, often all very subconscious as we go. Secondly, though, we protect our hearts by learning to look after ourselves. We live in a kind of crude, dog-eat-dog kind of world, where very subtly and very sophisticatedly we see everybody usually as competitors. Now I know that some people are, are collaborators and some people are competitors and you've done all that kind of team stuff and all that jazz and there are these different people types and you've got to bent towards one another. But actually when it really comes down to it, when you strip everything away, there is, I think, always a natural sense of competition with somebody else that will express itself in one way or another. Cain and Abel, right there, right at the beginning. And I think it's with us all of the time. And so if I am vulnerable towards you, because we might be competitors... I am anxious that you will seize on that vulnerability and you will get ahead at my expense. And so better for me not to be vulnerable in the first place. Thirdly, we protect ourselves with a kind of self-righteous 
justification. And I think religious people are brilliant at doing uh, this. So often we will justify our lack of sensitivity towards a situation or a person because we will say, well, it was their choice. If they hadn't made that bad choice, then they wouldn't be in that mess. If they hadn't gone to that place or done that thing or developed that addiction or had that habit or experienced whatever it is, didn't work, did it? Win some, lose some. If they hadn't done that, then they wouldn't be experiencing it. And so, so easy is it to justify that a person is suffering or experiencing something because they have contributed towards that reality. And do you know what? In many ways, they probably have. But that's gospel, isn't it? Haven't we all, every one of us, contributed to our own reality? And some of us simply feel fortunate enough that our need is not as on display as other people's. But the Bible would have us understand that our need is absolutely and exactly the same. And so when we say in our heads, well, I, I, I'm not bothering with that because it's their own fault, it's their own this, it's their own that, it's their own whatever, that's exactly what God didn't do with us. Can you see how in that moment we are most ungodlike? You with me? Now, I'm not suggesting we shouldn't be wise and all of the stuff and... and, and but here where our hearts are engaging for a moment, we disengage our hearts with a kind of self-righteous justification that somehow where people are was their own fault, their own responsibility, and therefore we are not responsible for them or with them. Just like the Pharisee who effectively said, well, I'm chuffed to beans, I'm not like that guy down there, poor, poor soul. And that spirit is alive and well in the church. I'm so glad I'm not like them. And so we move on all too quickly. Finally, we protect our hearts by covering up our own vulnerability. And we'll come back to, to, to this in a minute. Um, one of the things that I've noticed is that where, where, we're, where we're most vulnerable, we can be most unsensitive towards others. So if you're struggling with something, you can be very unsensitive, insensitive, insensitive, very insensitive towards others struggling with the same. Somehow it mirrors something to you. Uh, and, and instead of responding in the way that you might naturally do, you fight it and against it. We'll come back to that in, in a little while before we hit the end. So how do we position ourselves so that we can see our hearts soften so we can see ourselves becoming more sensitive. What might it mean to develop more sensitivity to the people that are around us? Now, maybe our five senses are a clue. We've been given five senses in order that we might be sensitive with. 
in a physical, biological way. And then maybe in a spiritual way, we've got five senses uh, to, be, to think about how we might be spiritually sensitive to those that are uh, around us. The first uh, sense is that of sight. A softening heart sees people as God does. Sees people as God does. Naturally, we don't do that. Naturally, we look around and make almost instantaneous judgments on other people. We, we immediately, subconsciously, unconsciously, consciously put people into categories, winners or losers. They're like me or they're not like me. I like them or I don't like them. They're nice or they're not nice. They're a friend or they're a foe. They're on my side or they're against me. And sometimes people haven't got over the threshold of the door and we've made those judgments in our hearts about people. And it's these things, if we're not careful, if we don't soften our hearts, if we don't develop our sensitivity, that is all we end up seeing about a person. And so we're categorizing people left, right, and center. As a result, and we do, we naturally find it easier to be more inclined to some people than others. They're like me, so I'll step towards them. They're not like me, so I'll step away from them. We're on the same team, so we'll feel a togetherness. We're not on the same team, so we'll keep apart. And all these judgments are coming into play all of the time. But what if we... No, you're moving. You're all out. I win. I win. What if... What if God could soften our hearts that we wouldn't instantly make those judgments? Wouldn't that make a difference to our relationships? Wouldn't that change the way that we handle ourselves? It's easy, of course, to see only what we want to see. And that's why in the story of the Good Samaritan... I love the little bit of detail about the way when they walked along the road and they saw the robber, um, saw the the man who'd been robbed lying down. what, What does it say? What side of the road did they walk on? They went over the other side. They went over the other side. Because seeing is the first way that we begin to engage our sensitivity. And we know that. It's why we shut things out. That's why we don't want to see, because it will begin that God-given sense of sensitivity to emerge. But secondly, if it begins with seeing, second sense I want us to think about for a moment is that of, is that of smell. A softening heart is willing to smell the stench, is willing to smell the stench. There is a stench of death about every human being. 
For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For all in our natural state, we live with a sense of decay, something that isn't right, that isn't whole, that isn't complete, that isn't healed, that's deteriorating. And it's as you get close to people that you begin to smell the stench. And of course, naturally, no one likes a strong, stenchy smell, so we'll step back, we'll keep away. It's a bit like, you know, if you go into a room and you kind of can vaguely smell something in the, in the air, and then perhaps you go over to the corner and you lift open a container. <sighs> Sometimes when you get close to people and they begin to open up their hearts to it, it's like they've ripped off the lid of a whole load of yuck that's been decomposing for quite a while. And there is a smell. And our natural instincts would cause us to step back rather than step forward. If we're going to seek to have softening hearts, we need to be conscious in those moments when we begin to get close enough to someone to smell the stench that we step towards them and not away from them. This is massively challenging. Because everything in you wants to step away and leave it for someone else to deal with. It might happen in your house. There's a smell in that room, someone tells you. Subtext, go and deal with it. Someone else can deal with that. But if we're going to develop the heart of Jesus, then we need to see and move towards and get close enough to smell the stench. That was Martha's point, wasn't it? If they were to open the grave of Lazarus, there would be an awful smell. But if you didn't open the grave of Lazarus, there would have been no resurrection. And do you know what the best thing about the smell is? It can be cleaned up. But do you know when it's all locked away and it's festering and it's growing green bits all around it? Last year's packed lunch that you haven't emptied out yet. But when the lid comes off, the moment that you want to run and step back, oh, it stinks, is the moment God's at work and he's looking for people to be in it with him. Thirdly, uh, sight, smell, touch. Thirdly, a softening heart is willing to touch someone else's world. Or another metaphor that we more commonly use, to walk in someone else's shoes. Or at least to imagine what it's like to walk, to step into someone else's shoes. And perspective is almost everything, isn't it? And usually we have our own perspective that is all-consuming and dominant. But what if? But what if we set aside more readily our perspective and was willing to see from another view? What if we were willing to touch, to feel someone else's reality? If only we could begin to put ourselves in their shoes. How would it feel to be handicapped or unable to walk? to dress yourself, to drive? How would it feel 
not to find a good seat in church because there's no room for the wheelchair? How would it feel to be unemployed when everybody talks about their jobs? How would it feel to have mortgage repayments that you know this month you cannot make? How would it feel to have children that you cannot or are not able to provide for? How would it feel to be separated from your spouse? How would it feel to be single in a group of those who are married? How would it feel to be in a marriage but be terribly alone? How would it feel to have Alzheimer's or multiple sclerosis? How would it feel to do that same dead-end job day in, day out? How would it feel to put ourselves in another's shoes? How does it feel to get up and walk four miles for dirty water? How, How does that feel? How does it feel to wonder whether today there will be enough on the table for your family? How does it feel to stand at the graveside of someone you've loved with all your heart? To put yourself in another's shoes. Now everything in us, even now, wants to push it all back in our heads, not to see it, let alone smell it, or to touch it, because it does create a vulnerability in our hearts. But it's that vulnerability in our hearts that makes us useful. It's what made Jesus who he was, a softened heart that touches their world. How do we do that? How do we get into someone else's world? Well, it's another sense, actually. Sight, smell, touch, hearing. A softening heart listens to someone else's story. And the the fastest, quickest way, although listening isn't fast, but relatively speaking, The fastest way to get into someone else's shoes, to touch their reality, is to listen to their story. But we live in a world where hardly anyone listens to anything because we're listening to everything all of the time. There is so much noise. There is always something to listen to that I wonder whether we barely, truly Listen to another human being. Really listen. It's part of the, the pre-ministry team. Some of the training things we've been thinking about recently is about the power of listening. And, and the way that listening opens up the door uh, for people's healing. It, it, is a, it is a gift that we give someone, a powerful gift, when we listen to their story. No, you moved. You still moved. Rubbish at this game, aren't you guys? A really powerful thing when you listen 
to someone else's story. Really listen and get inside their world. And you won't want to. I won't want to. Because you know what happens when you listen to someone? When they've offloaded, how do they feel? So they've offloaded, who have they loaded onto? How do you feel? Burdened. So, so everything in you doesn't want to listen. Well, why would you? They've got their burdens. It's their fault after all, that self-justification. They made their choices. They're bad. They should lie in it. Goodness me, get on with it. Shut up. Have an extra spoonful of sugar. Get on with life just like the rest of us. Please be quiet. Why would you want to listen? You've got enough burdens of your own, haven't you? Well, maybe you haven't. <laughs> but in that moment when we allow someone to open up their lives to us, and it happens in 30 seconds at the checkout. I'm not talking about a deep counseling room. It happens as we meet people in the street. It happens as we meet people over extended times, over meals, people that you know very well. This happens on all kinds of different levels. When we allow someone to open up their lives, there is a gateway, a huge gateway, into release and healing for them. And yes, sometimes you have a load which you need to pass on and you need that someone listens to you. And do you know what? We have a father who listens to all of us. What a, what's that hymn we used to sing? What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a, anyway, there's three verses and at some point it talks about him listening to us. Um, so if someone can remember that bit of the hymn, that would be fantastic. Uh, you get to that point of allowing someone that space and that freedom to be heard. It's a really powerful thing. And we would see a lot of release and a lot of freedom if we learn to listen much better than we do. I would see much more fruit in my relationships if I learned to listen better than I do. A softening heart listens. And then fifthly and finally, the, the fifth sense is taste. A softening heart tastes their reality. Tastes their reality. Instead of, instead of touching it, kind of just seeing what it's like, trying to hear and listen to it and engage with it, sometimes we have actually experienced ourselves. We have tasted ourselves the very thing that person is talking about. And you listen to someone talking about a loss, a grief, a pain, a hurt, a disappointment, and you think, I know exactly how you feel. And you might not know exactly how you feel, because how can you? But instinctively you go, yeah, I, I, get, I get that. I've suffered that kind of loss. I've felt that kind of pain. I've been in that kind of scenario. I kind of get it. I kind of understand and that's a very precious moment too, isn't it? Because those are gifts from heaven, we are told. That in the same way that God has helped and healed us, we can become the conduit, the channel for the help and the healing of others. We don't necessarily choose in our lives to have tasted what the other person has tasted, to have experienced what they've experienced. But God never wastes an experience. He will always use it. Uh, and one of the challenges I was reflecting on as I was thinking about 
uh, this morning, earlier on, uh, was this. For some of you, the Spirit would say to you today, will you let God use you where he has healed you? Will you let God use you where he, he, he has, oh, you can't even read it, it's a spelling mistake on it, so that's good. He has healed you. Now, that's back to that vulnerability. Do you know where we're vulnerable? Sometimes we're hard on others when you would say, well, you should be soft on them because you understand. Well, sometimes it works the wrong way and we become hardened because we feel vulnerable. We might feel vulnerable where we've been healed. And the last thing that we want to do is to, is to talk or to be part of that scenario. We've left all that behind. We've, we've given over. We've, that's part of our past. We don't want it to be part of our present. And so we shut it all back. But what if God has a use for that past in the present for the healing of someone else? That their past can now become a free and different present. You know what I'm talking about. So we need to think about the ways in which God has dealt with us, loved us, forgiven us, healed us, changed us, restored us, and how that sets an agenda for the ways in which he might be calling us to respond to others. Maybe cause is calling some of you into that space this morning. Very quickly, a couple of health warnings. A couple of health warnings. Uh, we read that um, uh, a great number of uh, people used to lie by a pool in, uh, in the Bible that, uh, uh, and the water of this pool would ripple and it was believed that if you got into the pool while it was rippling, uh, you would be healed. It was effectively a, a, a Middle Eastern hospital place you would go, sick would gather around, and, and so on. And here a great number of disabled people used to lie. One who was there. Whole hospital of people, all kinds of sick and disabled people. The Bible tells us about Jesus being sensitive to one. To one. The health warning is this. Not everyone. You cannot possibly become sensitive to everyone. And that's part of the problem with our whole mass media approach is that it makes us feel like we should be sensitive to every need that there is on the planet. And you absolutely cannot do that. You will self-combust before lunch. Not at, Jesus wasn't sensitive to everyone. Not by a long way. His human capacity meant that he was sensitive to some people. And what we need to learn in our sensitivity towards God is who are the people that we need to be sensitive to around us. There's a whole room of needs here. We cannot all be sensitive to everybody. Uh, and, and in our need, we should not expect that because it's an impossible expectation on other human beings. But there are people that we are absolutely called to be sensitive, to break our hearts open to and for. Not everyone. You can't do it with everyone. And the second thing is, not always. Not everyone and not always. Sometimes Jesus had some really bad news. And the first thing he tried to do after some really bad news about John the Baptist being killed was to get away. Basically, he was saying, I've just got nothing left for this crowd. I'm exhausted. I've just got to get away. And you cannot always be sensitive in the same way that you cannot be sensitive to everyone all of the time. You will self-combust. And there is a sensitivity towards God to know 
when that calling is on our lives to step forward and to step in with hearts that are soft and ready and able to engage. Ultimately, this is what the Spirit does in us. In the end, it's God's work, the fruit of the Spirit, producing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. In the end, it's the work of God in us that will always make the difference. Let's pray.